Hi, I'm Frank Daly and welcome to That Sounds Interesting podcast. My guest today is Laura Lukic, a filmmaker and podcaster and writer who has made a number of documentary shorts, has a long running podcast and has created art installations and other creative projects. She lives in San Francisco before moving here to Berlin several years ago. So welcome, Laura. I'm delighted to have you on my podcast today. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the, your background in art and video. I was really interested in becoming a dancer when I was quite young. And then I was dissuaded from that. And then I wanted to become a photographer. And I was hoping to go to college and study photography. And again, my parents said, no, you know, you'll become, I think there was that starving artist mentality. So I decided to go into marketing so I could be in advertising and be exposed to the arts, kind of quote unquote arts in that way, film and and video. But then I moved to Japan in my junior year of college. And I saw the hyper consumerism there and I realized I don't want to be part of this. So I kind of took a long way to get back to doing documentaries, which is something that I was interested in as a child. Um, Not particularly, I wasn't thinking I was going to make documentaries at that time, but um, kind of my life took me before, after Japan, and after I completed my degree in marketing, I moved to New York City as a a kind of a place, I just fell in love with it. I went on one uh, vacation there and just, and was terrified the first time that I stood on the street with my luggage in the East Village waiting for my boyfriend at the time to like call his cousin. And I just thought, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? By the end of that week, I was like, no, I'm moving here. So I moved to New York City before going on to graduate school to study economics in India. And during that two years of uh, kind of waiting to go to graduate school, I did a lot of, um, I spent a lot of time in the arts. So going to dance and taking dance classes. And also I took a Super 8 video course. I don't know, from a young age, I was really interested in that medium. And that's when I decided, okay, someday, when I'm finally like finished, you know, achieved something in my work life, I will start to do filmmaking. So that was my goal when I lived in New York City. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into documentary filmmaking because I love learning and there's so much to learn and to share. I, you know, when I spent time in Japan, it was really life-changing, that experience. And I wanted to kind of bring some of that curiosity and knowledge back to people. Um, but I... S- up that process I didn't get to like kind of my pinnacle of my career and then leave and do filmmaking I was after my degree in in India I moved to San Francisco and I worked in the tech industry and this was in the early 2000s when the kind of dot bomb was happening that industry was imploding and I had been kind of moving 
to different companies and having lots of great experiences and actually really loving that kind of world and the people that I was working with. But in 2003, I think it was, I went through a layoff and I decided, okay, this is my time to try documentary filmmaking. And if it doesn't work out, that at least I've tried. Like, for whatever reason, I had been sick and I felt like life is short. And I thought, like, I want to take advantage of this layoff and the severance package that I got to go out and learn this craft. Of course, seize the day, really. You know, take that opportunity and when you can. Yeah. So that's what I did. So that's when you asked me, like, what's the beginning of my art practice? I had to, like, actually think about it. I haven't thought about that in a while, but it was uh, it was this long road. So it, you didn't start then in a straight line. You came around to it eventually, even though the thoughts and the seeds of these ideas were from much younger time. Yeah, because, you know, culture and parents and like what you're allowed to do and what not what you're not allowed to do and um and like living in a society where maybe you know i was worried about um societal expectations and then i think you know some people give those up at a much younger age and maybe it just took me a little bit longer to kind of embrace what i wanted to do okay your inner artist you're embracing your inner artist yeah so um what about the art projects in san francisco then I started with, maybe I wouldn't call this an art project, maybe it was, but because of my love of dance, the very first kind of test projects I did were little short documentaries about dancers and choreographers. And I took some classes, like at, um, I got a mini scholarship to learn editing through a organization called Bay Area Video Coalition. And during that process, I was able to get introduced to the public television station there. And I did a little piece for Spark, which was like their, their arts television. I produced two pieces for them, which was amazing. Like, oh, it was television, right? Um, and then I decided to make a feature-length documentary, like wow. television length. So it's 60 minutes, um, not movie length, which would be 75 generally. And I was thinking because of my economics background of doing something about small towns in California, these single industry towns and how the uh housing was distributed between like the rich and the poor how that bifurcation was so evident and what that meant about our society about you know whose work is valued and whose work is not valued as much and this idea came to me because i would uh, occasionally drive to new mexico where my sister was living at the time and i would drive through these single industry towns and i just found them so fascinating and on the way to my sister's wedding, I was practicing with my new camera. And I was with a friend at the time, actually somebody I had just met, because my sister was getting married. And um, 
I went down there with my friend Kiara, and she had to use the restroom, so we stopped at this rest stop, and there was this busload of men that got off of a, you know one of those big touring buses, and they had been at a international beard competition in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> And they were German and they were like taking a road trip kind of slowly back to LA so they could see parts of America. And they just happened to be at this roadside stop at the same time. And I was like, can I film you? Because they looked so crazy with these very long, um, you know, mustaches that seemed to be like two feet long and beards styled up with like humongous curls and... And they said yes, because they liked the attention. Um, and so I just did a little mini interview, you know, playing with the camera and just kind of capturing this phenomena that I had seen. And I, when I, after the wedding, I showed this to my brother-in-law and he was like, this is amazing. And I was like, why, why do men want to look at other men? Like it just didn't compute to me. Cause I, I know that you know, there's beauty competitions for women, but this is like a beauty competition for men. Um, well, I guess it more, it was the un, the uniqueness of it more than anything else. You know, it's not every day you find there's going to be a collection of guys with really unusually styled beards, you know, <laughs> all in one location. So, you know, novelty factor, I guess. It was novelty, but it's also the men actually do this intentionally and go to compete. So there's a bit of the beauty aspect as well. And when I showed this to people, they're like, I want to see more. And I was like, why? So as a woman who never had paid attention to facial hair, this was interesting. And that became my first documentary, Beard Club, film about the social politics of facial hair. Okay, really, really great that you came to it by total serendipity. And often those things just work out, you know, um, you hadn't when you got up in the morning, you had no idea that you were going to make a documentary about beards. No idea. So uh, just moving on a little bit and um, looking at, um, we'll say the Parks Project. Now, this is hopping over from uh, San Francisco or well, California to over to Berlin. And we'll talk about that journey in a second. But just let's talk about the Parks, Parks Project for a moment. Maybe you could give me a little background. Oh, that's interesting in the context of like accidentally coming upon a subject. Um, because the Park Project Berlin was also an accident in a way. Beard Club captured my interest because other people were interested. And I had this, I could follow the thread of looking at um, these power dynamics among different groups of men. And when I came to Berlin, Park Project Berlin, I was also had been thinking about doing a, a documentary about sustainable urban transit. And during that research, it also came to these uh, power dynamics between people who like autos and people who don't like autos and like what was happening there. Oh, you mean you mean cars versus bicycles? Yeah, kind of or pedestrians or public mm. transportation, mm. right? My actually my interest was in public transportation. I thought, why don't we have the same kind of ability to access public transportation that they do in Japan, in America? Um, because I didn't want to drive. 
So I was was interested in that topic. Um, But when I came to Berlin, I put that on pause. I was only planning to be here for a year. And I did bike around Berlin a lot. And what I got interested in was seeing that, like, um, as I was biking, I always was biking near parks because at the time I didn't know this, but there are over 2,500 parks in Berlin. And each of them looked so unique. It was like another world, right? They have um, wooden play structures, and some of them for the children are are structured as 1001 Nights inspired, some are ship inspired, some are some kind of fairyland inspired, you know? And then, yeah, so I had come from San Francisco where the public parks, they had just purchased all of these, it seemed like space related, I don't know, metal, kind of things like they just bought all this steel from China and they all kind of look the same and they put them through all the parks and we don't even have that many parks and some of them in in Berlin are wild right it's like they're not taken care of in a way but they're kind of left natural and I think Berliners like this kind of wildness right in their parks and some are more like Gleistreich and People that don't live in Berlin won't know Gleistreich, but that it's um, very nicely designed park where they incorporated the old train. It had been a like a some kind of rail system station. I'm not sure that's not used anymore. So the the rail lines are still running through the park, but then there's like forests around them or some it's just very uh, well designed and I gave myself a task of um, going to every week to a park to film I could duplicate like some parks I tried to film and I couldn't find them like it took me too long on bike in the winter and my hands were freezing and my phone wasn't working so it's like I I only made it part way to the park that's when I, you know, I learned a lot about Berlin because I did everything by bike and I tried to cover every single district in Berlin. So going, and, and Berlin is quite large, so sometimes it would take me an hour and a half just to reach the park. So I have over 70 videos. Um, and part of this challenge to myself was also to see, like at the time when I moved here, um, there were so many people creating content all the time, and I was like, my form of storytelling takes a longer time to create. So I thought, well, maybe I can do little profiles and see how many I could create. It was a lot of experimentation. And now at the end, I do want to make a big documentary with this, kind of showing the, the, the passage of time. There's the history associated with, I guess, the par- some of the parks. And also there is connections in terms of what happened during the wars. And, you know, they're, they're all things that would have influenced what parks are in there. Like an example being, there's a park there in Friedrichshain, uh, the Folks Park, and that, that has a big hill in it. And that's from rubble that they removed f- from Berlin after the Second World War. So, you know. Yeah, there, there are eight of those rubble piles yeah. because they couldn't get the rubble out of West Berlin. Because they didn't have the rights to go 
by train through East Germany. So yes. they became hells. <laughs> well, it's an interesting kind of, of history in so of how things get developed. And but they're still integrated and, you know, you mightn't even be aware of it. You know, you could be there and have no idea that this was artificially made because of some reason. So there's a lot of the I'm guessing there's lots of other stories behind each of the parks, especially the bigger parks, actually. Yeah. And some of the parks, I have stories and some I don't. I have I tried to just make this like a collage. I tried to find a way to create videos about these inanimate parks which are animate there's a lot of life there right how do i make little mini documentaries profiles about nature in urban spaces um and then i did incorporate like the people that i meet and ask them about their impressions about berlin or their impressions about the park and then they offered me these stories because the berliners know the stories so um, let's jump around a little bit and go back to the time you were in San Francisco and you decided to come over here to Berlin. What prompted that and how, how did you get on and how did you manage to get integrated into Berlin? For several years or maybe a decade in, Cal in California, I planned to stay in San Francisco for two years. I was there for 18. Um, and I kept thinking, well, I know I need to move at some time, but... I will wait until I feel called to move because I felt called to go to Japan. I felt called to go to India. I felt called to go to New York. I did not feel called to come to Berlin, but I felt called at that time finally to leave San Francisco. And my plan was I would come to Berlin because I had artist friends here. They said it's very easy to get a work permit. I would come here and then I'd figure out how to move to Mexico City. That was five years ago. <laughs> and have you managed to go to Mexico City? I actually did for vacation in 2019 to see friends. But um, no, somehow I've decided to stay in Berlin. There's something that draws people in in Berlin. How, but how did you find the language and getting an apartment and getting somewhere to work? How did you find all those challenges? I'm still really challenged by all of those things. Um, but I, I feel really lucky that when I moved here, I joined a co-working space that was meant for artists. It was like half yoga, half co-working. It no longer exists, but at the time it was this really special place and I made good friends there, German friends. It helped me kind of break the barrier because um, Berlin is not known to be very friendly. <laughs> it takes a long time to get to know people. Um, but that, that co-working space was a really good place for me to land. And then I started meeting, um, artists and actually I made a lot of friends who were French artists who are no longer in Berlin, but for a while I had this circle of, um, artists who were German, French, and Taiwanese. Um, and now I've, when that kind of dissipated because people moving, um, I felt very lost and a bit alone. And now that I've started writing my books and gotten to know people through Shut Up and Write, I again feel grounded here. So let's talk a bit more about the book then. So last December, I started working on a book about 
my storytelling methodology, which I call the we story, which is um, a storytelling that is, well, I started working with this structure with my documentary filmmaking. And um, I have my own documentaries, which I mentioned, but I also have done work for different organizations, including IBM, but also I moved to doing a lot of work for nonprofits and social change organizations. And I found that people were always wanting me to do the kind of hero's journey story format, which I did not feel was appropriate for the kind of stories we were trying to tell. So for example, I was, um, editing a project for Earthworks, which is an organization that is dedicated to finding ways to regulate oil and gas, to reduce pollution, and to make the planet more livable. And they, ha they gave me footage. I came in as an editor, not as a filmmaker, right? So I didn't have control from the very beginning of the project. And they had a lot of interviews, one expert and a lot of people who had experienced health issues because of living by oil and gas sites. And there was no one character that could be the hero of this particular quote-unquote journey. So I was doing... Um, creating a video with multiple voices. I had to convince my client that we don't have a hero's journey kind of formula that we could, that I could actually use. And I, but I couldn't find any, anything out there in terms of books on storytelling that talked about the particular methodology that I, I already had been using and that wanted to use, which were with multiple voices. So that's what I wanted to do. Like, whatever, a decade later, I was like, with the pandemic, finally, I have time, I want to write this book that is using this story structure that I've been using so that, like, when I'm working with clients like that, they have a framework. It's a form of storytelling that uses personal story interwoven with more evidence or factual information. So it weaves back and forth between personal and it can be like the author's personal story like in the case of Omnivore's Dilemma and Michael Pollan, he uses that methodology. Or the personal stories can be of like stories of other people that like the author might interview interwoven with facts. And I was like, oh my God, like it's already out there. It's just in the documentary world. Nobody ever talks about it. I'm looking at it for both writing and filmmaking and speech making. So, but just to have a framework that doesn't actually make the storyteller the hero. So, um, and how far are you on uh, the development of this book? I'm in the draft two, and I'm now, today I was writing in chapter 23 out of currently 30 chapters, but I think I'm going to have another few chapters. <laughs> Most of my chapters are 2,000 words. One of them I wrote last week was 5,000 some words. So I think I'm going to have to break that out. But yeah, so I'm over two thirds of the way done of my second draft. Okay. And I good. think I'll have a third draft, at least at least a third draft. <laughs> so you're, you're well into the project, but there's still a bit to go. Yeah. So what about other projects now um, that you have that you might be working on 
in the coming year? Well, when I started writing the We Story book, originally it was going to be like 40 some chapters. And I realized, oh, the second half of the book, which is more about methodology of how to be curious, it became another book called How to Be Curious. And I've already written that, the first draft of that. So. <laughs> okay, wow. So you've got two books in the, uh, currently on the go. Three, no, four books, actually. Oh. All, all that came out of the wee stories. So you, you gave me one, one other one. What are the other two? One is called Dare to Dream on Purpose, which is about like how to find your spark to do uh, purpose-driven work. And then the fourth one is called The Pause, which is about how to use, um, how to enhance your creative flow by actually not working, by taking pauses. So I guess they could be subjects of, of future podcasts at some stage. And actually, speaking of podcasts, let's talk about your own podcast. Um, this beautiful shot is not by accident, which is it's not an accident. Oh, not an accident. Sorry, which is your podcast. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. So I know you've been running this podcast for quite a while. Yeah, and I don't do it. Um, I kind of do it when I have time. Uh, but I started in 2017. I'm on season four now. Uh, the podcast itself is about storytelling, the creative process, and social change. So everything kind of is, um, you know, I have this big theme of social change and creativity. This season, I'm talking to academics and thinkers about storytelling and empathy and how that can help bridge divides. And the interviews that I've been doing also feed into my research and into inspiration for the We Story book. So there's a kind of synergy there. Yeah. Okay, that's really useful to have that, to be able to draw on that material and to be able to use it and repurposing it as well. That's, that's such a super idea, I have to say. I think we've talked about a lot of stuff, Laura, today, and uh, I've really enjoyed this chat. In fact, I think I'm really only scratching the surface in order to get some idea of the type of stuff you're working on. But it has been very interesting to talk to you. And thanks very much for being on my podcast today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. Bye. We could have been sardis, same world, but without us. Something made us, made us find each other out there. We're more than just stardust Ignore this fact if you must To do what your dreams are telling you to do And I'll be out there looking for someone like you